morning. How many of you have heard of Billy Graham? Raise your hands. See, it's laughable, that question, because everyone has. Another question. How many here have heard of Charles Templeton? Raise your hand. Very few. How many have heard of Braun Clifford? Raise your hands. Even fewer. Let me tell you their story. In 1945, Billy Graham was 27 years young, and he was emerging as a young evangelist who soon would preach to thousands. However, at the same time, someone that he knew, Charles Templeton, was also emerging as an evangelist and was actually seen as a better preacher with more notoriety and more promise. One seminary president said concerning Charles Templeton, he is the most gifted and talented young man in America today for preaching. We haven't heard that much of him like we have Billy Graham. Then there was Bron Clifford. And this young man at that time, it was said, was the best preacher to hit American soil in centuries. One source said of Bron Clifford, At the age of 25, Clifford has touched more lives, influenced more leaders, set more attendance records than any other clergyman in American history. Question, why have you heard of Billy Graham and you haven't heard of these other two guys? Answer, they all started out of the starting blocks well, but they ended poorly. Only one of them is finishing strong, and that's Billy Graham. You see, Charles Templeton after five years, left the ministry denying the claims of Jesus Christ altogether. Braun Clifford, by 1954, lost his family, lost his ministry, and lost his life to alcoholism and financial indiscretion. In fact, Braun Clifford died in Amarillo, Texas, The clergyman of the area took up a collection to buy him a cheap casket to ship his body back east so that he could be buried in a cemetery for the poor. Starting well doesn't mean that you finish well. But it ought to be a concern for us. We ought to think about not just I had a great emotional experience one time, but that I'm continuing in my walk with the Lord. We conquer by continuing. And we all should want to end well. Jesus did. He said, my food is to do the work and the will of him who sent me and to finish the work. Paul the Apostle wanted to end well. When he was confronted with the prediction that if he went to Jerusalem, he would be beaten and perhaps killed, he said, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear unto myself, that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry that I have received of the Lord Jesus. I'd like you to turn this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 13. That's where we'll all begin reading. I'm going to actually begin in chapter 9 and chapter 10. It's an unusual kind of a study in that I'm giving you a jet tour of the life of Saul, the first king of Israel. So much is written about his failures, I just sort of want to get it over with in one fell swoop. Here's a man who started well, but he did not end well. The interesting thing is that he had all the equipment to do it right. He had all of the advantages to succeed. But listen to his own words toward the end of his life. In chapter 26, 
looking across the valley as David is there. He gives his own admission, the summary statement of his life, when he says, Indeed, I have played the fool, and I have erred exceedingly. What a statement. And it's the statement that is the banner statement over anyone who squanders the gifts and the calling that God gives to him. To look back and say, I could have been, I should have been a powerful instrument in the hands of God, but I didn't. I wasted my life. So his life is a life of contrast. And Saul is like many who begin the Christian life with a bang and end with a whimper. They start out of the block strong, but something happens. And it could be even said, they have played the fool and erred exceedingly. I found that there's a Chinese proverb they use to describe a fool. It says, outside noisy, inside empty. That's all. He made a lot of noise, a big splash, but inside he had nothing. Um, First off, before we jump into chapter 13 and read some of these verses, let me describe to you how he began his climb upward. He's a man that had advantages, natural advantages. He was just naturally equipped. He had the edge, you might say, to do the job. And let me describe those to you. First of all, he had a good heritage. It says he was from the tribe of Benjamin in chapter 9, verse 1. His father's name was Kish, who was a mighty man of power, or a very important man. So he had a great heritage from a good tribe. Remember, Benjamin was the favored son of Jacob, given to him by his favorite wife, Rachel. So he had a good heritage. Also, Saul had good looks. Chapter 9, verse 2 said that he was taller, head and shoulders above everybody else, and he was handsome. Now you might say, well, that's not important, but it was to them in those days because it was admired somebody who was very tall, and perhaps they looked on him and said, now this guy looks like a king. He just has the aura about him. And it could be that the text mentions that because that was the beginning of his problem. Maybe he just looked in the mirror a little too often, tried his crown on in different directions, maybe with sunglasses, without sunglasses, whatever. Perhaps his looks, his beauty, his height began his downfall. So he had a good heritage. He had good looks. The text also tells us in chapter 9 he had a good relationship with his father. When his dad lost donkeys, he went after them to find them. In fact, in chapter five, or chapter 9, verse 5, it says that Saul was concerned about his father's emotional makeup. He said to his fellow servant, let's go back quickly, lest my father quit worrying about the donkeys and start worrying about us. Now that gives us insight into the fact that Saul was concerned about the proper relationship to authority at first. At first. Good heritage, good looks, good relationship with authority, his father, and he started out having a good estimation of himself. He was humble. When the prophet Samuel finds Saul and anoints him as king and says, you're the next guy, you're the guy, Saul says, I'm the least in my father's house, and my tribe is the least of the tribes of Israel. He starts out very meek and humble. Those are his natural advantages. He also had some supernatural advantages. 
Now, it's important you understand that here's a guy that was the second best. He was the people's choice, not God's. However, because he was going to be the king, God did supernaturally equip him to do the job. He had supernaturally God's power. The prophet Samuel tells him to hang out with the spiritual elite of the nation. And in chapter 10, verse 6, He said, the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will prophesy with them. And get this, you will be turned into another man. And one of the most amazing verses is verse 9 of chapter 10 where it says, God gave him another heart. So he had the the power of God on him. He also had the presence of God. The prophet Samuel Continued by saying in verse 7 of chapter 10, When these signs come upon you, do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. He had God's power. He had God's presence. Another advantage, he had God's people. Everybody needs loyal subjects around you if you're a king, and he had them. In chapter 10, verse 26, we read these words, Saul also went home to Gibeah, And valiant men went with him whose hearts God had touched. This guy had everything he needed for success. People around him to support him. The power of God, the presence of God, a good relationship with his father. Good looks, good heritage, good estimation of himself. And yet, at the end of his life, Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. What went wrong? What were the snags? What caused a person to descend so rapidly? Now, as we examine his path beginning in chapter 13, understand this. It never had to happen. What happened to Saul was simply a result of bad choices. He made several bad choices, but it didn't have to be that way. When I first moved here from California, I'll never forget being introduced to an ex-missionary, minister-slash-missionary, who was out of the ministry for that period of time because of moral indiscretion. And he uh, had a very sullen face. And he looked at me and said, Don't make the mistakes I have made. Gone is the joy of serving the Lord like I once knew. And it never had to be that way. It was the choices that I made. Dr. F.B. Meyer, a very gifted Bible commentator, once said, This is the bitterest of all, to know that suffering need not have been, that it has resulted from indiscretion and inconsistency, that it is the harvest of one's own doing and sowing, that the vulture which feeds on the vitals is a nestling of one's own rearing. Ah, me, this is pain. To look back in that kind of regret. Well, let's, let's look at what went wrong. He played the fool, I've outlined a few different ways. First of all, by arrogance. And I draw your attention to chapter 13 when he has a battle with the Philistines. And, and let me paint the scene for you. Saul has a standing army of only 3,000 men. 2,000 of the men are with him on a hill. 1,000 of the men are with his son Jonathan in the valley. With only a 1,000 men, Jonathan attacks and wins a minor victory. Though he wins the victory, his dad takes the credit. 
In verse 3, we note, Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines. A little further in verse 3, Saul blew the trumpet. That sort of becomes the statement of his whole life. Noisy outside, empty inside. He makes the noise, but he never had the victory. He just watched. Okay, it, it gets worse. Same chapter. They're all waiting together now. Because the Philistines are going to retaliate. It's going to get worse. Evidently, the prophet Samuel has told Saul, wait till I get there. I'll sacrifice an offering to the Lord. We'll get our spiritual priorities squared away, and then we'll finish the battle. But he doesn't do it. Notice in verse 8 of chapter 13. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattered from me, that you did not come within the days appointed, that the Philistines had gathered together at Mishmash, then I said, The Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal. And I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and I offered a burnt offering. This is a problem because Saul, though he's a king, is not a priest. And only the priest could offer the sacrifice. So this guy, in pride, intrudes into the office of priesthood as if to say, Hey, listen, he's not here, but I'm here and I'm the king and I'll do whatever I want. And So notice the rebuke now. Samuel said to Saul, verse 13, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which He commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for Himself a man after His own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over His people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. We notice that Saul, when he's confronted, never fessed up. Never said, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm not a priest, I shouldn't have done this. Rather, he makes excuses and he blames Samuel. Well, you're late, man, and I'm the king. He began reigning as king by saying, who am I? I'm the least in my father's house and least in the kingdom. Now he's saying, look who I am. It's pride. And pride ruins what God builds. Pride ruins marriages. Pride ruins friendships. Pride ruins ministries. God begins to use a person. They get very puffed up and start looking at it like there's some great thing. And they're on their way down. I met uh, Jim Baker after he was released from prison in North Carolina. And he was a very different man than what I had seen him on television for years before. And in great humility, he said, It was my pride that caused the downfall of my ministry. And it, it can happen in, in, in any capacity, relationships, ministry, friendships, business associations. We can become like the woodpecker who is hitting away at a dead tree trunk and 
Suddenly a bolt of lightning came and splintered the tree, and it broke in half. And the woodpecker startled, flew back and looked and said, Look what I did. He didn't do anything, but he took the credit for it. Saul played the fool by arrogance. Second, Saul played the fool by indifference. And that brings us to chapter 14, and I'll just sum up some of the highlights since it's long. By chapter 14, he has even fewer men in his army. It's reduced to 600 600. And they're all sitting under a, a trees up on a hill, up on an area called Migron, which means fear, wondering what to do. Jonathan, once again, is not with his father and with the rest of the army. He's alone with his armor bearer. And he turns to his armor bearer down around verse 6. And he says, you know, it may be It just may be that the Lord will work for us. For what restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few? Let us, you and I, just us two, we'll go up to the garrison of the Philistines. You know, God is God. He could could give us victory, just you and I. It was a wild plan, but it worked. God gave two guys the victory over their enemies as a thundering sound rattled through the enemy's camp and they got scared and turned on one another. However, his father Saul had given, unbeknownst to him, a very rash, lame oath, a command. He said to his men, No one shall eat, and this is found around verse 24, No one shall eat anything until evening until I get vengeance on my enemies. That was sort of a spiritual sounding thing. We're all going to fast. No one's going to eat anything. We'll all fast till we get victory. Well, the reason that's dumb is because you need energy to fight. And as men, the Bible says here, grew weary. Well, Jonathan, in the course of his actions during the day, not hearing his father's promise or command, sees honey, takes it, eats it, gets strengthened, has a boost of energy, and moves on. His father found out, Jonathan is eaten. And his dad says, well, then he has to die, doesn't he? He was going to kill his own son because he was so indifferent. He's indifferent to the needs of his men. They don't have enough strength. The battle is hindered. In fact, when they finally eat, they come upon the spoils of the enemy, they eat raw meat, bloody meat, which is against the law, because they're so hungry. So Saul, in indifference to his army's need, causes them to sin, doesn't give them energy, and is about to kill his own kid. Till the enemy, or excuse me, his own army men step in and say, Oh no, you're not going to kill your son. We even recognize this is a lame commandment. And they wouldn't let him at him. It is a foolish person who is oblivious to the needs of others while trying to make himself look good. That was Saul. He played the fool by arrogance. Chapter 14, he played the fool by indifference. Third, he played the fool by flat disobedience to God. That brings us to chapter 15. This time he's fighting another enemy, the Amalekites, and there were all sorts of ites that he was fighting. The Amalekites were age-old enemies that attacked them on their way from Egypt into the Promised Land. And God had given a command. 
He said, The Amalekites have been a thorn in your side from the beginning, and they have hardened their hearts so much against me, I want you to wipe them out and not spare any of the spoils or anything. Saul leads the people into battle, spares King Agag, the king of the Amalekites, brings a lot of the good stuff instead of destroying it for himself and for the people. It was incomplete obedience. And so there's a meeting now. The prophet Samuel meets the politician Saul. And notice verse 13. Saul says, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. The guy can still preach. He's got the God talk down. He knows what words to say, the right buzzwords. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Bless God. I'm obedient. He had been disobedient the whole time, but he's just talking right. He's a hypocrite. Paul Eldridge said, We hate the hypocrite more keenly than the mere liar because the hypocrite adds to his lie the lacquer of flattery, which we are gullible enough to accept as tribute to our merit. Here's a man exposed to the Word of God, using the language of God while he's being disobedient. Verse 14, let's hone in on that. Chapter 15, verse 14. Samuel said, once he said, I've obeyed God's commandment, what then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? If you've been obedient and you've wiped out everything, Why do I hear animal noises? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. And Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet. And I'll tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said, Speak on. So Samuel said, Notice this. When you were little... In your own eyes. That's how we began. Humble. When you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder, the sheep, the oxen, the best things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God. You see this guy? He's blaming now the people. He once blamed the prophet. You're late. He once blamed his son. It's his fault he ate honey. Now he's blaming the people. It's their fault. So Samuel said, Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you, from being king. Billy Sunday once said that an excuse is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. These are lame excuses. 
He's shoving the blame on everybody else. Here's my point. Here's a guy who's been exposed to the word of God, claiming to have been obedient to God, while all the while he's slithering and he's a hypocrite. This is like the person who would come to church every week, carry a Bible, sing the songs, say glory to God, hallelujah, praise the Lord, but live a life all week long in disobedience. And a person plays the fool when he does that. Fourth, he played the fool by preeminence. What I mean by that is he couldn't stand anybody liking anybody else more than him. He wanted to shine all the time. He played the fool by preeminence. That brings us to chapter 18. And I'm going to, in a couple sentences, fill you in. I told you it was a jet tour of his life. It is. By chapter 18, David has killed that overgrown midget named Goliath. And everybody in Israel celebrated it. He was the new hero on the block. After Goliath fell, Saul and the rest of the armies had this skirmish with the Philistines. Israel won. They're now coming back from the battle. And notice in chapter 18, verse 7, So the women sang, this is all in front of King Saul, as they danced, and they said, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. Saul heard that. This is now the song. This is in the top 40, man. This is number one on the list. Everybody's singing it. And they're getting into the tune and they're dancing with the tambourines. David has slain his tens of thousands. Saul has slain his thousands. Actually, they ascribed a lot more than was due Saul. But notice what it says. Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed only thousands. Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. Boy, this guy couldn't stand the truth. And so he's jealous. And his jealousy will erupt into irrational behavior. Eventually, he'll say, Hey, David, why don't you come in and be my personal jukebox? Why don't you play some of that cool music that you played in Bethlehem? And so he'll play his music and... Saul will look at him and become enraged and throw a spear trying to pin him to the wall. He'll become outraged. I read a a little quip of a fisherman who claimed that when he would catch crabs and put them in his crab basket, he never put a lid on his crab basket because he was never afraid they would escape. He said this is the reason. When one crab tries to climb out, the other crabs will quickly grab him and pull him back down. That's Saul. He's a crab. David is coming up to the top. He has defeated the armies of the Philistines and Goliath, and rightly so, by the power of God. And Saul's there to grab him and pull him back and even exterminate him. He played the fool by preeminence. Preeminence is like a cancer. When you start saying, what about me? What about my needs? How come people don't applaud for me? You can play the fool and become very irrational with jealousy. In fact... Saul's drive for preeminence reaches such heights that in chapter 15, he builds a monument for himself on a mountain. And when Samuel comes to confront him because he did not completely obey the commandment of the Lord, listen to this. This is chapter 15, 
Verse 27, Samuel turned around to go away. Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. And so Samuel said, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Then verse 30, Then he said, this is Saul, I have sinned, yet honor me now. Please, before the elders of my people and before Israel. Did you hear that? Rather than admit he was wrong, and rather than turn, he goes, okay, okay, great, but just make me look good. Honor me now in front of all these people. I got my audience here. There was a lion who knew he was king of the jungle, and he wondered if everybody else in the jungle knew he was king of the jungle. So one day he went over to the bear, and he said, bear, who's king of the jungle? And the bear said, well, you are, almighty lion. Everybody knows. The lion gave a roar of approval. And he went over to the tiger and said, Tiger, who's the king of the jungle? The tiger said, Oh, it's absolute that you are. And then he went over to the elephant. And the lion said, Elephant, who's king of the jungle? At that point, the elephant wrapped his strong trunk around the lion, flipped him up in the air a few times, dunked him underwater, slammed him against a tree, underwater again, then back on the shore. The lion, bruised, bloodied, staggers up, looks at the lion and says, look, just because you don't know the answer is no reason for you to get mad about it. (laughs) Saul is like that. He's holding on to his position at all costs. He says, okay, I'm rebuked, I've sinned, but honor me now. I should look good. Preeminence. Fifth and finally, he played the fool by irreverence. That takes us to the 28th chapter of 1 Samuel where again, I cannot read it for lack of time, but I will give you a capsulated version of it. In this chapter, he inquires of God because he knows the end is near. The Philistines are gathered on Mount Gilboa. He wants to find out what he ought to do, so he prays. But God doesn't answer him. And why should God answer him? God has given him his word and his will, and he has disobeyed it time and time again. God's done talking to him. So what does he do? He hires a medium, a witch at Endor. He has to have some direction. God isn't talking to him. I'll go to a medium and get a medium to find out what's going on. What a contrast. A man that had the Spirit of God, a man whom God said, I'm going to give him another heart, a man whom it says he began his ministry in the dawn of the morning. The sun was rising when he was anointed as king. Now in chapter 28, it's darkness. And in the darkness of night, irreverent to the Lord his God, he turns to alternate spiritual sources, the witch at Endor. Once again, I'll say it, a good start doesn't guarantee a good finish. Bron Clifford started well, finished poorly. Saul, the king, started well finished poorly. William Culbertson, one time president of Moody Bible Institute, said, Lord, help me to end up well. That's my prayer. I want to end up well. I don't want to just say, at one time, this and that happened in my life. I want to end well. Which begs the question, how could Saul have 
ended well? What could he have done differently so that he would end like he started? Let me quickly give you three things that you and I can take home. Summary statements. Number one, Saul could have taken sin more seriously. He never did. He never took it seriously. He had lame excuses for what he did, but he didn't take it seriously. He blamed others for it. It's your fault, Samuel. You're late. It's my son's fault. He ate that honey. It's the people's fault. They wanted to sacrifice. But he never took responsibility. Twice he admitted, I have sinned, but he never turned from it. He kept doing it. It's much like Pharaoh. Do you remember Pharaoh admitted he sinned, but he never changed? Balaam, the false prophet in the Old Testament, admitted he sinned, but he never changed. And yet Proverbs 28 tells us, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses, listen, and forsakes them will find mercy. That's the part that Saul left out. Confessing and forsaking. So number one, he could have taken sin more seriously. Number two, he could have placed character over reputation. Boy, he put a lot of emphasis on how he looked, didn't he? His reputation. Honor me now in front of the people, even though judgment's coming. He was more concerned of what people thought about him than what God thought about him. Big difference between character and reputation. Reputation is what people think we are. Character is who we really are when no one's looking. It's like a bushel of apples. The reputation are the apples on top. Character is you get past the top layer for advertising and you look at the rest of them, that's the character. He could have placed his character over his reputation. In fact, interestingly enough, when Saul is dying, he's concerned about his looks. How is this going to look? And he tells his armor bearer, hey, take out your sword and kill me. It's going to look bad if the enemy kills me. He's concerned at death in how he looked. So he could have taken sin more seriously. He could have placed character over reputation. And third and finally, he could have taken advantage of the friends God had given him. He never did. Think who was around him. He had Samuel, the prophet, who got him started and encouraged him and said, God is with you. The Spirit of the Lord will be upon you. But he became a thorn in the side of Samuel till he died. He could have taken advantage. He could have said, Hey, Samuel, I really need a mentor here, man. I'm blowing it. I could use your help. What about David? He would have been a great friend. In fact, David respected Saul so much. When he could have killed him, he said, Oh, I won't touch God's anointed. Uh Uh-uh. He's God's king. He loved him. He was loyal to him. He respected him. but, But Saul never took advantage of the accountability and the friendship. So it's possible, as we see in Saul's life, to destroy everything God is trying to build so that in the end you would say, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. Do you think God was trying to get Saul's attention? We've given a jet tour of his life, and I think we can see that God was trying to get his attention. Two rebukes by a prophet, one rebuke by his entire army of 600, And when he finally consults the witch at Endor, Samuel, some miraculous way, shows up. I think God was trying to get a hold of this guy and say, cop a clue. But he never did. 
Let me close by a story that was given to me by a friend in the church called, Have You Been Stopped by a Brick Lately? About 10 years ago, a young and very successful executive named Josh was traveling down a Chicago neighborhood street. He was going a bit too fast in his sleek, black, 12-cylinder Jaguar XKE, which was only two months old. He was watching for kids darting out from between parked cars and slowed down when he thought he saw something. As his car passed, no child darted out, but a brick sailed out and whoomp, smashed into the Jag's shiny black side door. Screech, brakes slammed. Gears ground into reverse. The tires madly spun the Jaguar back to the spot from where the brick had been thrown. Josh jumped out of the car, grabbed the kid, pushed him up against the parked car, and shouted, What is all this about and who are you? Building up a head of steam, he went on, That's my new Jag. And the brick that you have thrown is going to cost you a lot of money. Why'd you throw it? Mister, please, I'm sorry. I didn't know what else to do, pleaded the youngster. I threw the brick because no one else would stop. Tears were dripping down the boy's chin as he pointed around the parked car. It's my brother, mister, he said. He rolled off a curb and fell out of his wheelchair, and I can't lift him up. Sobbing, the boy asked the executive, Would you please help me get him back into the wheelchair? He's hurt, and he's way too heavy for me. Moved beyond words, the young executive tried desperately to swallow the rapidly swelling lump in his throat. Straining, he lifted the young man back into the wheelchair, took out his handkerchief, and wiped the scrapes and the cuts, checking to see that everything was going to be okay. Then he watched the younger brother push him down the sidewalk toward their home. It was a long walk back to the sleek, black, shiny, 12-cylinder Jaguar XKE. A long and a very slow walk. Josh never did fix the side door of his Jaguar. He kept the dent to remind him not to go through life so fast that someone has to throw a brick at him to get his attention. Had any bricks lately? Come your way, you're just steaming one direction, and God's saying, hey, look out. You're starting to play the fool here by preeminence, by arrogance, by indifference, by disobedience. God, in his mercy, was trying to get this guy's attention. But instead, he said, I played the fool. I've erred exceedingly. Could have been. Should have been, but he wasn't. Father, we conclude by lifting our own hearts before you. As we have seen in this series of movers and shakers, people who were mightily used by you to form a nation. And we have just considered a man who played the fool and was used as an instrument not of you, but by his own doing to ruin a nation to bring disgrace upon his people and to end up a fool in his own admission, his own autobiography. Lord, we who have begun, it is your desire to continue the work through us. Lord, I pray that having left the starting blocks, we would now run the race that is set before us and finish strong. 
In Jesus' name, amen.